This morning, we come to the last chapter of Matthew, Matthew chapter 28, the king's great conquest and command. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for a church that loves your word, that believes that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, mature, made ready for every good work that you call us to. Lord, this morning I pray that I might be spirit-filled, that each one of us as listeners might be spirit-filled, that your word might have its way in our life. Lord, this morning that if there are here some they do not know you. They don't, you don't know them. Or that today you would open their heart. That today would be their day of salvation. And we'll give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. John MacArthur said, If a Christian understands all the rest of the gospel of Matthew but fails to understand this closing passage, he has missed the point of the entire book. This passage is the climax and major focal point, not only of this gospel, but of the entire New Testament. And it's not an exaggeration to say that it is in its broadest sense, the focal point of all scripture, the Old Testament as well. Jesus has died on the cross. On that good Friday from 12 noon to three o'clock, Hell came to Golgotha because the wrath of God, not the devil, the wrath of God was poured out on our Savior. He suffered in eternity for our sin, for your sin, for my sin, for the sins of the whole world. And then he dismissed his spirit. He had prophesied, no man takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord and I'll take it up again. In the book of Luke, The Roman centurion in charge of that crucifixion, in charge of that execution, who's seen many men die, it says in the scripture, when he saw how Jesus died, said, truly, this was the Son of God. Because Jesus, with his last breath and full strength of manhood, asked for a drink, pulled himself up, filled his lungs with air, and cried out to Telestai, it is finished all that is needed for salvation was finished at the cross he finished it he took all the punishment of sin on himself at the cross he finished it there's nothing left for anyone to do but to receive it that's why the cross is so important to us as christians in our building we have crosses that hold the building together the cross is important he challenged all of us As believers, if you would come after me, take up your cross and follow me. And then he died. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 4, we have kind of that encapsulation of the gospel. Paul says, I share it with you again. How that Jesus died for our sins according to the scripture. He was buried and then he rose again. Paul says in the same book, If Christ is not raised, as some say, I was told this morning, the Pope even said, it's not important to believe. He doesn't believe that Jesus personally, physically rose from the dead and ascended to God. I don't care what the Pope says. This is what the Bible says. And Paul said about that, 
if Christ is not raised, then we are still in our sin, and we are of all people most miserable. The disciples did not give their lives for a lie. And here we have the account. Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn towards the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And these things had already happened. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. So this is what the women come to. There's an angel sitting on the stone that he's rolled away. Jesus is gone. The Bible tells us that when John and Peter, their experience was they went into the tomb. John stopped outside. Peter ran right in. But John said in his gospel, when he saw how the grave clothes were there, what happened? Just like Jesus passed through a door, they could touch his hands. He could eat food. But he passed through the door when the disciples were in hiding. I think he just, at the explosion of life coming back, his new resurrected body just passed through all the wrappings. It just, they just whoosh, sunk down. And then he took the face cloth and wrapped it and folded it and laid it by itself. And just the fact they saw it, they, they suddenly believed. They hadn't believed to that point, but they believed. And the women come, and this shows you how powerful angels are. Even fallen angels are powerful. The Bible never tells us to go around trying to fight demons. You don't have the power within yourself to fight demons. The Scripture, the, the scripture gives us instruction that we're to respect things. They're powerful. Don't mess with demons. Don't focus on those things. A lot of Christians, you like to write books and, and read things about the devil, and all the workings of demons. The Bible says God's not given us a spirit of fear, and that's what they want to minister to you, fear. There's a devil behind every bush. Now listen, Satan is the prince and the power of the air today, but you serve a risen Savior, and John said, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So don't be distracted from truth by darkness. But this angel, just his appearance to these hardened executioners, these Roman soldiers, who I guess were put there because I believe the priest believed he would rise from the dead. They were placed there, I suppose, to kill him if he tried limping out because that's what they expected. They had gone and gotten this contingent of soldiers from Pilate, and he says, go make it as secure as you can. And there they are, and the angel just shows up. And they become like dead men in fear. They begin to, their knees begin to shake and they fell out on the ground. So the women come walking. Here's these soldiers laying all over the ground. But they're not afraid and paralyzed. Why? Because the angels know they love Jesus. They're there for those women's protection. And so the angel says to the women, you don't have to be afraid. And he gives them instruction. Go quickly, tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. He's not here. He's risen. Now here's your opportunity. You go tell his disciples. 
He's risen from the dead, and there to go meet me in Galilee. And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy. Can you imagine the emotion? Their world had been devastated by the crucifixion. Hope had been lost. He told them what was going to happen, but they could not enter their minds. First of all, Jewish tradition, the Messiah does not get killed. He kicks out Rome. He's victorious. They only saw that part because they didn't see the need for the purifying of the nation. But he's dead. And then to have this mighty creature show up to announce, just like angels announce his birth, this mighty creature shows up, knocks out the Roman soldiers, and tells them, don't be afraid. He's not here. He's risen. And they left with great fear and great joy at the same time. Can you imagine the experience of those women? Oh, God bless them. Mary believed he was going to die. She anointed him, and she said, he said and protected her, you leave her alone because she's doing this for my burial. She believed. And so as they're going, I think they leave, and all of a sudden the Roman soldiers come too. And you know what their first reaction is? Desperate fear. Why? They're dead men. They are dead men. When you are given an assignment as a Roman soldier, they took shifts and some slept and some awake, but if everybody goes to sleep, everybody dies. That's Pax Romana. Pax Romana, the peace of Rome means you do what Rome says or you die. Great motivator. And so they think, what are we going to do? They've had a supernatural experience. Now what are they going to do with it? Sometimes you may think, if only God would give my friend a supernatural experience. Or maybe you think that, well, if I had a supernatural experience, then I'd come to Christ. No, no. How many people of the ten lepers that Jesus healed, only one came back and worshipped? You can have a supernatural experience, but the greatest miracle is when somebody comes from darkness to light and is saved by the glory of God. There are people that grow up in church all the time and have all the answers, but they never submit to the gospel. They never submit. They think it's about knowing answers. These men believe there was a resurrection, something supernatural had happened, and now their lives are in danger. They had a choice. They could have followed the women, but instead they had to come up with a plan. What are we going to do? Well, we can't tell Pilate because that's a death sentence. He doesn't care. They're probably not Italian anyway, like he is. They're probably just some Syrian uh, mercenaries who have been hired, so they're dead men. So they think, I know. We'll go talk to the priests. They're a bunch of connivers anyway. They're the, ones, they're the reasons we're here anyway. Maybe we can talk some sense and figure out how we can keep living. So they go talk to the priests. And the priests hear what happened. They shared their supernatural story. I want to tell you something. The priests believed he was going to rise from the dead. That's why they put a seal there. They thought he could get. So why are you saying that, Pastor? Because when, when Lazarus was raised from the dead, and they wanted to kill Jesus after he had done that because so many people wanted to see Jesus. That's why there was the huge crowd at the triumphal entry. Because 
They'd heard about Lazarus. Everybody was coming to see this man that had been raised from the dead who died, was in the grave four days, and then Jesus came and spoke the words, and he came back to life. So what was their plan? We'll kill Jesus, and then we'll kill Lazarus too. We'll be done with this. They believed he had the power to do that. They didn't submit to him, but they believed. So they think this is important enough. They get the whole Sanhedrin together. What are we going to do? We're going to lose our place. All they can think about is they're going to lose their power and their money. How many people forsake life for things that are going to perish? So they come up with this plan. Tell you what, we'll give you some money. And listen, they want to keep this quiet. They paid a lot more than 30 pieces of silver that Judas got. They're willing to pay, and they say, here's the story. You tell them that you guys fell asleep, and they're like, whoa, whoa, what do you mean we fell asleep? That's what we don't tell Pilate in the first place. We're dead men if we tell people. Don't know. You tell them you fell asleep, and the disciples came and stole the body away. And then you woke up, and it was gone. Well, there's a couple problems. If they were sleeping, how do they know it was the disciples? And what happens? You get in trouble. They said, we got a problem. We're going to give you this money. And if Pilate finds out he's got a problem with it, you just have him talk to us because we've talked Pilate into things before. We'll have our way with Pilate. And the Bible says the story went out that same way. What's the problem? They never look for the body. A personal little peeve of mine, but I, because I always get excited when I hear somebody's going to make a film based upon Scripture, and it'll be another way, another way to share the gospel with somebody, and then they mess it up almost every time. Why? Because they don't stick to the script. Say, what's the big deal, Pastor? As long as they say something, you know, it's kind of a little story. Maybe it'll get them interested. Because if you leave people, if you just take the Bible and do whatever you want with it, it's not the truth anymore. The example is when they have the story, this latest film that was done on the life of Christ, and they have the story of Lazarus. They have the script. The script says, where has he been laid? Jesus says, where is he buried? They say, right over here, they take Jesus where he's at. He said, take stone away, and what does Martha say? Oh, don't take stone away, he stinks. Four days, he's, he's hot climate, he's, he's stinking already. Just do it. And Jesus speaks the words, Lazarus, come forth, and he comes a-hopping out of the grave, bound hand and foot says loose him why because you'll probably have to raise him again from the dead he'll smother right so loose him and set him free what does the film do jesus goes into the tomb and kisses him on the forehead so what's the big deal the big deal that that's not what happened to me the big deal is stick to the script now, another film's been, you've probably seen it, about the resurrection of Jesus. And it's this big thing about they're looking for the body of Jesus. They never look for the body of Jesus. Why? Because they knew he raised from the dead. Why did, why did Matthew even include this negative story in here? Two reasons. It shows the rejection of Israel and their leaders to even the supernatural that Jesus is their king. They reject him. And secondly, it proves the story. It proves the story. They don't look. There's no search made for the body of Christ because they believe. The other thing is the disciples don't believe. They're in hiding. As far as the disciples are concerned, Joseph of Arimathea has given him the burial they could never afford. Leave him where he's at. That's the best honor they could give him. 
It had not entered their mind yet that he would actually rise from the dead. They're not looking for him. They're not going to steal him out of the place of honor. They're devastated. They're scared. They're all running for their life. It's a lie. Satan always has a lie, and those willing to believe a lie will follow the lie. But I think Matthew includes it because you want the whole story of what's going on. And I think it's also in verse 10, it's an amazing thing. He says this, do not be afraid. Go take my word to my brethren. Isn't that precious? These men had forsaken him, running for their own lives, denied him personally, and Jesus still calls them his brethren. There's an old gospel song that is so precious, out of precious to all of us, Oh, love that will not let me go. I rest my weary soul in thee. Why? Because we fail Jesus all the time, and he still calls us his children. We're not perfect. We're just sinners saved by grace. And you know what makes us love him more and more and more? Is because what's the mark of a believer? 1 John 1, 8 and 9. That we confess sins. That's the difference. We know we're sinners. And we're always confessing our sin. And we come to the second chapter, 1 John, chapter 2. He says, now little children, I tell you these things that you sin not. But remember this, if you sin, you have an attorney. You have an advocate. The one who died for you. And the reason our love grows for the Lord is because he forgives us every time we come back. That's grace. He calls them his brethren. Go tell my brethren. And they go there and they meet. And it mentions the 11 here. But commentators believe what Paul records in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That's kind of the gospel where he's wrapping it all together. So I, I share with you again. How that Jesus died on the cross for our sins according to the scripture. He was buried and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And was witnessed by over 500 brethren. So the 11 are there. Some mountain in Galilee because that's where most of his ministry was done. That's where most of the people that believe were from. The country folk. Not the sophisticated Jerusalem folk. And he meets them there on the mountain. And he gives them. This amazing challenge, the king's great command. Verse 18, Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. What is that authority? That's the worthiness. Because he has conquered death. With that explosion of life, he came out of the grave he conquered death for us. We don't have to fear death because he did it. In Romans chapter, Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, we're there often because I love that passage. The great stadium of worship. And John is there in the spirit and he's having this vision. And there's this sense, is there somebody who has the authority, who has the worthiness, the worth, to redeem the earth back to its perfection that God created it to be. So that the sin and the devastation, the grief that's caused by sin, you, when you share Christ, people always come up with, they think it's original. Well, if 
God is a God of love. Why does he allow this tragedy, this sin, this awfulness? God doesn't, God didn't make that. God doesn't do that. That's the wicked, rebellious, sinful heart of man that calls evil good and good evil. That's what that is. That's sin. But John begins to weep because a search is made and no one is found worthy. No one has the authority to take the earth back and restore it to what it was created to be. And the one next to John says, John, stop weeping. The lion of the tribe of Judah, he is worthy. And then John says, I saw a lamb freshly slain. The word Jesus stepped out. And he's reminded by his wounds. Now listen, brothers, sisters. We get to heaven, you are going to be made perfect in every way. But our Savior's perfection includes the wounds of the crucifixion so that forever we will be reminded and worship him because he redeemed us with his life, with his blood. Revelation chapter 1 verse 5 says the king of kings, the king of the princes of all the earth stooped down and washed you from your sin in his own blood. Salvation, my friends, is personal. It's not a generic thing. You go to a certain church and then you, you, you ascend to their doctrine so then you're in. No, no, no. God reaches down through time and space and he touches your heart, convicts you of sin. The, the song Amazing Grace says it was grace that taught my heart to fear. That was the Holy Spirit convicting of your need of salvation. Then Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, By grace are you saved through faith and that, not of yourselves. Even the faith to believe, he gave you that gift. It was grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. That was all God that reached down and saved you personally on purpose in time and space. And when Jesus steps out, that lion of the tribe of Judah steps out with the marks of of the crucifixion, the whole place falls apart. And we will all begin to sing and shout in our new voices that day, worthy is the lamb that was slain. Why? Why is he worthy? Because he conquered sin on the cross and he conquered death out of the grave. He's worthy. And he has redeemed to himself some from every tribe, nation, and people group. And in this command... The commander, the king, calls us to be involved in the greatest work that any person could be a part of. Not just pastors, missionaries, every single believer. This was given to the 11 plus the 500. This is the great commission. This is the command. The one that has the authority gives the command for us to be a part of what he's doing in our time, in our place. Go. The church is to be going. God had created Israel and gave Israel the opportunity to be that nation that all the world came by and heard the truth, and they failed. They failed. They begin to think that God chose them because they were better. No, God says, look to the pit from which I pulled Abraham out. He was a sinner like all the other pagans, and I chose him to pour my grace on that God might see and that you might be a light to the Gentiles, and they failed. And so he calls the church and tells the church, go. As you are going, do what? Make 
disciples. Make disciples. What's a disciple? It's methetes. It's a learner. John MacArthur says it actually brings two thoughts together. Those that believe and those that follow, continue to follow. God didn't send us out to get people to make decisions. When Matthew's saying this, he has all of his experience of being a disciple of Jesus Christ, of what that was. What did he do? He spent three and a half years following Jesus around. Jesus poured into him. Jesus took his time, poured the word into him. He lived it out before him. He preached the gospel with him. And Matthew thought, I think in his own thought, this might take some time. This means I'm going to have to be transparent with people. And if you're going to carry the gospel, you're going to have to leave some things behind. I was reading the commentary. John MacArthur uses an illustration about a young man that uh, joins a group, and there's an experienced mountain climber, and they're going to climb this, this mountain. And he's young, and he's strong, and some of the other people are older. And the experienced mountain climber, their guide, says, listen, if we're going to make it to the top, you have to leave everything behind. You can't take anything with you. And this young man, he's full of spit, and he says, I, I, I don't. He takes some wine, and he takes some food, and he takes some blankets, and he starts up, and he's at a good pace. And as those follow behind, find along the trail, here's the blanket, there's the wine, there's the food. The young man made it to the top, but he made it to the top just like the guide had said without anything. Jesus said, if you would come after me, you're going to have to take up your cross. What does that mean? You don't have room for anything else. The church in America is so wealthy, and yet we can't hardly put missionaries on the field today. Churches are dying. And so churches, leaders get scrambling, and they say, oh, what we need is a new style of music. We need to reach the millennials. No, no. The message doesn't change. The message is the same. People are still lost. No matter what generation they come from, they're still lost. And the only answer is Jesus Christ. The difference is we expect somebody else to do it. So have a big event. Do something cool. No, it's you forgetting about yourself and sharing the gospel. I've shared before the testimony. I was asked to go preach special meetings in, in Riverton from a pastor friend of mine. And, and we were happened to be at a Southern Baptist uh, I think it was annual meeting, and, and so they'd got this new thing you could try. And instead of witnessing, you just call the 800 number, and somebody else will witness for you. So just hand out the 800 number. And so we were not talking to this lady. I was talking to my friend, and I said, what would you like me to preach on? Oh, brother, whatever the Lord lays in your heart. I said, well, here's what I'm going to do. I just want to lay out the simplicity of the gospel. That's what I want to do. Because so many people are afraid to share because they think they don't know enough. The gospel is simple. It's not easy, but it's simple. And so lady overheard my conversation. She says, oh, you know, I'm never going to witness to anybody. But listen, we have this new thing now, the 800 number. I looked at her because I hadn't asked her opinion. And in my grace and kindness, I said, or you could get over yourself. And if you shared the gospel and your friend came to Christ, you'd be so excited. Nobody could stop you from then on. Listen. God is giving us this opportunity because this is one of the greatest joys on earth. To see someone come to Christ, to see the greatest miracle, somebody comes from darkness, and he's given that to us in the gospel. That's why Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it is the power of God and his salvation. If a little child shares it, 
The person that not so cool shares it, like me, like you. People need the Lord. But we get so event-oriented, we, we think, I think it's great. Invite them to church. I'll love to share the gospel with people. I'll love to see people come to Christ. So bring them here. We're going to preach that. But listen, you can do that too. And this great commission is to you. Go make disciples. Build relationships. Share Christ. Live it out. And it starts with prayer, but it ends with words. There's no such thing as a silent witness. You go to court. And the judge says, all right, tell us your testimony. Well, judge, I, don't want to be a, I just want to be a silent witness today. Well, what did you see? Well, I, I just don't want to say. I just, I just want to be a lot of character, and people love me, and so I'm just going to be a silent. That doesn't mean anything. At some point, you have to get to the point and share the gospel. Do you know the gospel? Jesus died on the cross for our sins, according to the Scripture. He was buried, and he rose again the third day. And he has this opportunity where he's not going to hold people's sins against them if they submit to the gospel. But it doesn't stop with that decision. He says, teach them to observe all things. He says, baptize them. When they make the decision, part of discipleship is baptism. Into what? Into a local community of believers. Today, we get the great privilege. I never get over here in testimony. It is the great joy of my life to hear testimonies because once again, we hear what God did in our midst in bringing something to himself. And the most powerful preaching we hear is when a new believer just shares, well, I was born a young child, and it came time in my life, God convicted me. I realized I was an awful sinner, but I had hope that Jesus would save me, and I trusted him. And today, I want to proclaim that Jesus is more Lord and Savior. We had little Cyrus, and he shared his testimony. And his dad said, Cyrus, why do you want to be baptized? He said, because I want to tell everybody that I'm a follower of Jesus. That's it. That's it. See, if somebody refuses to be baptized, well, I'm afraid, or I'm waiting for the right time. Okay, I get that. But at some point, you don't want to follow Christ in the simple obedience of baptism. It's not salvation. It's just simple, the first step of obedience. Then I got to say, what is wrong with you? Jesus paid it all on the cross. You won't just stand up and say, I'm a follower and be baptized. Then it says, teach them to observe all things that I've commanded you. The idea of methetes is one that submits to the gospel and he's a learner. We never want to get to the place where we're experts, right? We are learners all of our life. One of the marks of a pastor, of, of an elder, is not just that he's able to teach, but that he's teachable. Every time we come to a challenge in our ministry, we don't say ever, well, we know what to do here. We go back to the elements of Scripture and say, what does the Bible say, guys? What are we supposed to be doing? We need to pray. Teach them to observe all things. And here's the blessed part. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Listen, he's coming back. We're going to give an account for what we did with the precious life that he's given us. And we have this opportunity. Listen, we need to have an urgency. It's one of the high, highlights of my life when, when my, my friend Aaron Frude came to me. He said, Paul, he said, I want to see somebody get saved. I'm like, okay, that's going to happen now. And you know what he's done? Him and Stacy have shared that kind of passion with all of their children. 
You just see it happening. That's what all of our homes should be. A passion to see people come to Christ. We have a church that has a passion. What does it take? It takes boldness. Most of us know enough. It takes being willing to let go of some of those things. You know, God has blessed the church in America, but we have so many toys and so many other things that are distracting us from what the king commanded was our main command, and that is to be disciplers of the whole world. It took a while for the church of Jerusalem to get it. God in his sovereignty had to bring a terrorist into their midst, Saul of Tarsus, and he scattered the church. And then he got saved. And when he was called down from his home in Tarsus, he'd gone back to the church at Antioch. The Holy Spirit said, as those elders got together and they began to get concerned about what the Great Commission was, the whole world, the Holy Spirit said, you separate out Saul and Barnabas, the work that I've called them, and it began. But listen, church, when we get to the place where we're big enough to pay the bills and we got a building, that's when most churches just take it easy. Let's not take it easy. It starts with prayer. Praying for your friends. God, lay upon my heart some lost people for me to pray for. In your small group, begin to pray for the empty chair every time you get together. Praying for your lost friends because God wants us to be a part of the amazing work that he's doing. Listen, we live in a culture that's upside down. I understand it's getting darker and darker. That just means our light's going to shine bright. Father, we thank you for this amazing culmination of Jesus' life, that he's called us in this great fellowship of seeing people come to, come to you and come to new life. Lord, this morning we're going to hear testimonies. Lord, be with those as they share those precious stories of how you worked in their life to draw them to salvation. But Lord, if there's any here that do not know you as Savior, Lord, right in the quietness of their chair, Lord, draw them to yourself in their own hearts as they bow their hearts before you, that they would confess that they believe that Jesus died on the cross for their sin and rose again and receive you as their Lord and Savior today and commit to following him, Lord, will give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing together.